0: You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Episode 80 of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Brock. We spend this episode celebrating folks who really do everything they possibly can to improve healthcare for patients. Our two guests come from different worlds, different populations, different parts of the country, but they are joined by a simple yet solemn commitment to make life better and make healthcare more consistent for even the most vulnerable among us. And the lessons we learn from them, from their work, wisdom and experience, these lessons are tried, true and universal. Our guests today are psychiatrist, Dr. Jason Herrick and community health worker, Brianna Burke. Now, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, talking about behavioral health, NCQA is again at the forefront of health measurement. The NCQA Distinction in Behavioral Health Integration Program works with NCQA PCMHs to perform gap analysis and to figure out how to bring better care to mental health and substance abuse patients. One of the first health systems to qualify for our behavioral health distinction was New York-based Montefiore Medical Group. With their headquarters in the Bronx, Montefiore Health System includes more than 20 primary care locations in the Bronx and Westchester County. Over time, Montefiore's leaders realized how inseparable behavioral health care is from physical health care. Dr. Jason Herrick is director of the Adult Behavioral Integration Program at Montefiore Medical Group. He's also assistant professor for Pediatrics and Behavioral Sciences at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Let's hear now from Dr. Herrick.
1: Tell me a patient story. Well, I, I work with a number of patients. I do my clinical work at one of our locations in the, in the South Bronx area. Um, I, I'm there one day a week for with full-time patient care. Um, I, I think there's like a, a general sort of patient that I think that our service really, really helps and then there's a, I can talk about a couple of unique ones. The, the, the general is is it, I kind of come back to that access issue is and what frequently happens is patients with, Psychiatric illness, they get hospitalized, they're discharged from the hospital, they miss that, that intake appointment that they were supposed to that they had scheduled from their disposition. They're on these medications, they can't get another appointment with them. They show up to their primary care doctor and they give these lists of medicines that they're on and they're say, help me. Um, the fact that we have integrated care. In, in, in more so than just integrated care that we also have psychiatric services that we can provide is those patients like that are left like I don't want to go back to the hospital I don't want to decompensate again I'm finally stabilized I'm not suicidal I'm not psychotic all these things that we went to the hospital to sort of resolve to be able to say you know, we can bridge you. We can we we have people on our team, we have an e-consult service. So even if I can't see you, Dr. X can send a message to me and say, Jay, what do you suggest I do for this patient? And I can give them those recommendations. So so those patients that feel sort of helpless and hopeless on the heels of a significant decompensation that led them to go to the hospital, whether it's suicidality or what have you, have they can come to their primary care doctor, and there's there's a, there is a resource available to them, and those patients are numerous. And I think that we really do a good service to help all those persons. That and then the other patients, the patients that like move, they come from Texas, and they like, oh, I'll just find a psychiatrist when I get to to get to the Bronx, and then they realize, wow, it's really hard. Um, so then us being able to help those patients out as they transition into a in a new living situation,
0: but mental health affects all the rest of the things it affects physical health right and so that's where it becomes if if primary care is a, prevent, a preventative specialty that's where it also becomes very important because it's sort of uh, physical
1: prevention as much as as it is emotional or or behavioral prevention yeah, there's, there's a lot of data that shows and supports and the like the implementation of collaborative care models and and you know meeting the patients for the rat at a primary care setting because, you know, we have this patient that has potentially heart failure and they keep coming to the doctor, they keep going to the emergency room. And, you know, what they, what what could in certain situations has been discovered is that they're actually depressed and anxious. So they're not actually following through with the treatments that are able, as well as they would like to follow through with the treatments that have been recommended. And they can't get out of bed to do some exercise. They can't, you know, leave the house because they're anxious. And that perpetuates the the, the medical illness and um, of, of, not, of, of the system not being able to adequately treat the medical illness. And it's really because of the underlying mental health. So if we're actually treating those together in tandem, you know, the data has so, shown over and over again, that you, you, you have better outcomes and then, you know, for the healthcare system in general, it, it saves a lot of costs, which is obviously something that's really important. You know, so you, you say we were
0: doing uh, all of this work or some of this work beforehand, before distinction Um Why? Tell me why. It has been a challenge uh, in many ways. There's all kinds of things that have sort of served as roadblocks to uh, across the country, not just Montefiore, across the country where folks are dealing with this. So tell me why you all decided to make a commitment to that.
1: Um, Well, the the simple answer is the, the patients show up at the primary care setting and they say, doctor, help me. And when they're saying that when it's not diabetes, it's not hypertension, it's not heart failure, and it's I'm anxious, I'm depressed, or something like that, we, we wanted our doctors to be able to help the patients to come through our doors. Um, and they come through every day. Data usually, most, most commonly quoted is about one in five patients that walk through our doors will have a mental health condition. Um, and if we can't meet the needs of a fifth of the patients that come through our doors, we're not really doing what we're trying to do. Primary care is a preventative specialty. If you think about that, I think about it in that sort of context of medicine. So, being able to prevent, whether you know, whether it's through vaccinations in pediatric populations, present certain illnesses. If we can identify these things as they come into our sites and and start the conversation at least about some access that or some 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 interventions that might be uh, available to them, um, we can work to to really hopefully prevent people from moving to persistent mental illnesses. You know, the sad stats are, but if we have one in five people that come into our sites that, that we do actually identify them accessing care, it's like one in five of those people actually can access care. Um, and that's not good enough. That leaves a ton of people in our community suffering and, and not being able to, to sort of, uh, you know, improve or live the quality of life that, that perhaps they otherwise would be able to. Tell us practically how it works. So the practically how it works in our system, we have roughly 20 primary care locations, every single patient that comes into our site across the lifespan, whether you're two weeks old to whether you're 90 years old, um, at some point in a during a year, you will get a, a what we call a universal screener. Um, and, you know, it's a universal screener cause it's meant to sort of cast a very wide net. And then if those things, those screeners are positive, we do do more targeted screeners. So every, every year, at least someone comes in, they get screened. Um, if they are positive, the PCP, or sometimes it's the nurse practitioner or, or a, or one of you can nurses for that matter might say, you know, this is positive. You, you might benefit from speaking to one of our behavioral health specialists, um, ideally they'll be able to call the social worker psychologist even some the psychiatrist sometimes who's on site to come and meet the patient then and there uh, it's the, like the term that's used is called a warm handoff so the PCP will introduce the patient to one of our uh, providers, our behavioral health care managers, which we call patient educators, one of our social workers, one of our psychologists, or what have you, and they'll introduce what what sort of they should expect. What you know, they might do some additional, more targeted screening, and then the patient gets that get usually will get scheduled for a full assessment through with one of our with one of our clinicians. Um, this is all being done in the same location as the PCP. The, the social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist is communicating with the PCP, so they are working collaboratively to ensure that you know, the patient engages in care, follows up with the recommendations, um, and, and you know, hopefully has some benef- uh, uh, good outcomes. Our, our programs are not meant to replace community mental health centers or private psychiatry uh, pra- private pr- private practicing psychiatrists, psychologists, or social workers, it's really meant to provide that initial access. And like that initial access is so important to care. I was mentioning that we identify like one in five of the patients. Right now, about 40% of the people that actually need mental health care in our country are accessing it, which means 60% of the people who need something are getting nothing. Um, and, and a big part of that is access. One thing that we pride ourselves on at, at MMG and what we've been really sort of happy to say, and while we do have work to do, um, we've been averaging a little over a thousand referrals per month, and we've been able to outreach and, and, and schedule approximately 75% of those patients, a little bit less than that. But if we are being able to at least contact someone and say, Hey, we are here for you. We have an appointment that we can schedule for you to talk about these issues that is causing you this pain and suffering. That's a lot better than, you know, the 40% that people are accessing care nationally. So, so we do take pride in that. Um, you mentioned that the idea of stigma, um, there was a study that was done in 2021 that talked about how about 30% of people that were not accessing care. They weren't accessing care because of stigma, whether it was because they didn't want to tell people in their community, they didn't want to have to talk about it in their workplace. They, they just felt embarrassed by it for whatever reason, culturally, just societally, whatever it may be, you know. When you go to your primary care doctor, there's not a lot of stigma. I'm going to my doctor to get taken care of. If I can also see a mental health clinician there to get some help, it de- decreases the stigma at some point. And we like to talk about how it almost pro-stigmatizes getting help for mental health needs. It, it makes it it's a good thing. You're going to do something that's good for yourself and um, not only for your social-emotional self, but also for your physical self. So while you earn the distinction, to me, it, it seems
0: that this is just part of... Uh, The DNA, the routine of your primary care practices in terms of we've decided to make this part of the overall whole person care. Um, So to me, it sounds like it has worked out. You said we have more work to do. I imagine you face some challenges tell me what those are.
1: So the referral flow is, is unrelenting. There, there's there's new patients coming through the door every single day that need help. And, you know, we, we, we staff ourselves, um, at, at which we think is sort of an efficient way and an optimal way to staff, but there's always someone that needs more. There's always someone that needs to be seen sooner. Um, and and so, so so those are certain challenges. And in the nature of our program is a short-term model of care. Um, so as we've had, And we described that when we, you and I talked earlier, we sort of
0: described it as mental health triage: get you help immediately, and then get you into regular care, essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's people are going to follow different pathways. So, like, there's the mental health triage where, okay, I can say pretty confidently the first time I assess you that, okay, this is going to be something that needs uh, a a more long-term, ongoing. Uh, psychiatric intervention, whether it's medication, psychotherapy, group therapy, whatever it may be. And it's going to be, we're talking on the order of like, you know, half half a year to years where they're going to need to be in treatment for this. Our model is really set up originally. Um, I mean, it evolves and we, we we flex when we need to, uh, to have like 10 to 12 sessions. And if you think about 10 to 12 sessions over the course of like, if you're doing it every other week, you're talking really about two and a half to three months that we, we ideally would be working with someone And some of the data shows that like, if we like for, for most successful outcomes we are working with someone for about four, four, four months and successful being, they've had resolution as other symptoms, they're doing better. They're on a stable dose of medicine and they can kind of just sort of be, I kind of put the term like on autopilot where like they're followed by their PCP, but they don't need sort of the, the, you know, all of the interventions that we can certainly provide as we had patients, whether it's due to insurance issues, in, in, which creates other access issues, or just because with the pandemic, as, as all the data that indicates, there's more depression, there's more anxiety, there's more substance use, there's all of these things. There's more, more, more. And that's coupled with there's less, less, less of all of the staff. You, you start to have this sort of bottleneck of not being able to move patients from our sort of triage short-term model into the longer-term setting leaving us with patients that we need to manage longer term, which then creates a challenge for us of how we can continue like, to satisfy the, the flow of the new patients. Um, I, I'm, I feel like we've been, we've been as successful as possible, um, but you know, I wouldn't, it, you know, we wouldn't be working in a world of quality improvement if we weren't thinking we can see one more patient each day um, and provide that additional access. Then um, you know, that's sort of what the mission is that we're trying to do, is to make sure that we you know keeping the doors open. Um, and keeping keeping the appointments scheduled. I would like to hear you encourage young doctors to talk to young doctor, a, n- a new doctor, about why this is so important. I, I, I'm going to answer your question a little bit with a story of during the time I was deployed to the inpatient units during COVID. Um, one of the things that I got deployed doing was uh, going around with an iPad to make sure that people in the ICU could Visit their families, could say goodbye to their families, um, could to process what was going on with visitors, because obviously, no, there wasn't any visitors that were allowed um, for for a large part of the, the initial surge that we experienced, pretty pretty significantly here in the Bronx. Um, probably some of the most impactful work that I've impactful and meaningful work that I've I've done as as a doctor. Um, why why it's important? Um, I think. The, what what was highlighted by that was this aspect and, and it was by necessity it was by the chaos of what was going on during the that initial surge that there was an aspect of humanity that seemed to be lost from from medicine um, people were looking at values people were doing the best they could but like it was it was just they observing this lack of this is a person. This is like uh, this is this is. There's there's more to this person than just this person that, that's sitting in front of me. Than these lab values I'm looking at. Than these orders that I'm placing. Um, every patient that you see has a story. Every patient that we see has a life. Every patient that you that you see, they think about things, they feel things, and they do things. I say that to every patient. It's sort of a hallmark of cognitive behavioral therapy. Is we think, we feel, and we do. That is what it is to be a human. If you buy into that, like then, you know, to not acknowledge what people are thinking and what people are feeling in your, whatever practice that you're doing, you're missing something because almost universally doctors are trying to get at that behavior. I want you to change your behavior to have this better outcome, but we have to understand what they're thinking and feeling to to be able to really impact that behavior in, in most circumstances. And if I could tell doctors that that awareness Young doctors, Yeah, it doesn't have to be doctors, anyone. It could be front desk staff. It can be anyone interacting with people, which generally is people. Respect people's thoughts and feelings. Understand what they're thinking about. Learn about sort of how that dictates what people might be doing. It will only help you understand that person in the medical world. It will help you understand your patient better. It will help you engage with them in different levels than just uh, your A1C is high. Um, and like things like that. Tell me a patient, and you certainly don't have to tell me, very much about them,
0: but um, so that we can keep them their information private. We certainly don't want to delve into people's business. Um, But tell me, tell me, you know, first of all, how common this is and and sort of an example of how this process has worked and turned out to be rewarding
1: uh, for the patient and frankly, for the practice and yourself. Um, There there is a, a certain patient that I, I, you know, I think as doctors, we all, we, all patients we, we, we hopefully treat equally and with the same with, with a level of, with, with equity and things like that. And I, I think I'd be lying to say that there's aren't, there aren't some that we sort of hold that hold a place in our mind that have just been good experiences for us. And um, there, there, there's one patient that, that does come to mind in that sort of domain, and um, they were uh, coming off the, the heels of a you know a significant life event and a celebration of, of sorts. And uh, in the aftermath of that, there was a decompensation um, into a pretty significant depression with, you know, a high level of anxiety um, and 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 the the access to our our service. It, it's just always good when it works seamlessly the, the presents to the PCP identifies the concern, hooks them into the social worker, social worker starts working with them social worker says this isn't getting better in a short period of time let's see if we can like recruit psychiatry to see if we can help I come in I meet this family um, really connect to, to certainly the patient also the support system as well and identify like kind of what's going on and able to sort to make recommendations to get them started on some uh, a treatment that was appropriate for the presentation that they had and, and in a really short period of time, this person was able to sort of restore themselves to to the position that they had and and the lifestyle that they had. And and the best part about it was, you know, that was in a matter of months, having things transition back to, you know, primary care and sort of pants off from the behavioral health perspective, you know, the family knew that this resource was available and they could reach out uh, when there was a future uh, issues that rose in this person's life. And, and, and that was, the, the, that that trend, that that reconnecting was was so seamless that we we were able to do these very brief one to two session sort of interventions a number of times to to maintain functioning maintain quality of life and and, and it was just it just has been experienced as, as a success. PCP is appreciative, family appreciative. And, and like you said, but it's, it's always nice to have those rewarding experiences from, 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 from my perspective to, to know that, that all the work that I know is impactful on an individual basis is impactful.
0: I, I wonder what you think or what your thoughts are about teaching who will become primary care physicians, folks who will become primary care physicians about the education they get in behavioral health and whether you think it could be improved, we're improvement people, we all usually think it could be improved and what you think that
1: might be. Um, I certainly do think it can be improved upon. Um, I, I think, I mean, it's hard medical education as, as science advances, like the, the amount of things that medical, whether it's a medical school or residency, it's just, ex- it expands and expands and expands. And it's, it's really hard for primary care doctors who are, you know, our are, are old school generalists that are supposed to sort of know everything um, for them to sort of like be able to be able to know everything. Almost every pediatrician, no matter what specialty you're going to go into, are going to see children with ADHD are going to see children with developmental disabilities. And the fact that their training doesn't focus more time on how to work with those patients and interact with them really does the patient a disservice, but it, it actually undertrains the clinician to, to, to be ready to, to navigate the, the, the patient populations that they're going to come, come to interact with. One of the things that our service has, has really worked hard to do is in the, the BHIP model um, at MMG has, has has really worked to do is to to, to retrain the, uh, to retool the, the workforce, is to try to provide didactics, whether that's through straight didactics trainings to PCPs, the attendings, um, or whether that's doing that through like kind of curbside consultations or case presentations. Um, but to do those sorts of things to sort of help tool the attendings and certainly in our teaching sites with the skills to do certain things. So when their residents are coming to them in the precepting room, presenting a case to them, like it doesn't have to just be refer to site or refer to social work. It's like, okay, so what's the targeted screener that we're going to do? What medications might we consider for that? What are some medical things that we want to rule out before we just put it into the psychiatry basket? There, there's, there was some study in pediatrics uh, years ago that talked about how a, a a visit for a pediatrician you know is was roughly you know can be done in about eight minutes and if they completed in eight minutes that's a very straightforward like you know this is how much time the doctor has spent with the patient once there's a behavioral health concern that was raised that visit became a 17 minute visit and i'm saying minutes because that has to do with sort of like the healthcare economics of things we want to be efficient we want to get patients through we don't want them and and the the time delay wasn't necessarily because the the, the pediatrician didn't want to be helpful, didn't want to be empathic, didn't want to like do all the things that needed to get done. It's because they didn't know what to do. So they were spending time like calling people looking for things. So the more that we can tool them to say, all right, I can talk to you about this. I can kind of validate your experience. I can tell you what the next steps are going to be. I can give you the psychoeducation. And then, yes, we might have to refer you to some specialists. But that's what we do in every other aspect of medicine. Um, And and like, you know, I'm going to work up your constipation. I'm not just going to send you to the GI doctor right away. Let's work up your ADHD or your depression or your anxiety before I just send you to the specialist right away.
0: What do you expect to happen now with the service? Is it going to grow? You think it probably will change. You always you are you are a QI organization. So
1: uh I, we are constantly looking at various data points to identify like where we have like gaps that we can fill and we can improve things on um i think that um i i we've, we've used a lot of uh, telehealth uh services which is which is certainly what was was required sort of it was sort of a silver lining i guess if you want to call it that of the COVID, is that it really pushed like an advancement in telehealth services um so i think that we want to kind of expand on that we want to certainly you know, advocate for continued uh, reimbursement for those services, like, you know, the Bronx transportation, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a large borough, but it's, you know, relatively small, but it's still pretty hard to get around. And it's really convenient for the mother of four that needs to come and have her therapy appointment to not have to schlepp her four kids with her to this appointment. Um, so, so to kind of continue to leverage and, and advance her telehealth services. Um, I think figuring, I mean, things that, you know, that we're, that they're being actively discussed amongst the medical group is enhancing our care management uh, services to be able to really help hold people, hold people's hands through, through the systems. Um, the, the systems are, are seemingly made to be challenging to get through, um, which is, does a disservice to, to certain, to, to many patient populations that don't have other, other sort of supportive means. Um, so care management, uh, we're, we're working to sort of shore that up. Um, there's a large effort that's going on uh, to, to really uh, in, in increase our community health workers. So people that like know the community that can go to patients with patients to the different services that we're trying to connect them to, um, because it, we, we know that that would have a, r- a real significant impact on s- those social determinants of health that can contribute to negative health outcomes, mental health outcomes. There's always something to improve on. I, I mean, the thing that we focused on mostly in the last probably year, year and a half, I guess under my guidance, was to ensure that we had access. Um, it, it's great to say we have this referral order, we have these people, but if we have these people working for us, that we we don't have the systems in play to make sure that they're they're being utilized, well then we just have some of sitting there. Um, so we've done we've done we've made a lot of progress in ensuring that the the access for the referral flow that we have is in place. Um, you know, there, there is the reality that the, the expression, you, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't always make him drink. You know, we, we're not going to get everybody because, you know, st- whether it's stigma or whether it's other sort of factors, people might just not engage. But if we can say 100% of people or as close to that as possible have access, we're doing our part to say, come, come to us if you need us. Tell another medical group why they should follow your lead. Uh, the, the data shows this is how you're going to positively impact uh, your patient's lives, and it reduces stigma. It, it can only enhance the the well-being of your patient population by addressing their social, emotional, psychiatric needs as you're dealing with the other things as well. Not only
0: in the healthcare world, but across the world, a little bit of empathy goes a long, long way and much longer. And, and in my mind, empathy and increases efficiency, because if we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, then we have a better um, uh, we're equipped with more information to get us to that better outcome. Just as human beings, we all know if we're in pain, we've been in an accident, we've hurt our elbow. It hurts a lot less when someone else is holding your hand and telling you it's going to be okay, right? Even if you don't know them, it helps a heck of a lot. And this is the same thing. This is somebody holding your hand until you get the care you need. And I think that you, you
1: can't um, value that enough. And, and even if we're not holding their hand in the moment, another great thing about being a primary care, particularly for people that are accessing our services, is that they know we are there. And sometimes just knowing that a person will pick up the phone, that if I talk to my PCP and I said I need to speak to a social worker, it may not be today or tomorrow, but we do our best to have some outreach or contact or schedule within 14 days. Someone is going to call you and someone is going to listen. That's
0: Dr. Jason Herrick with his insights on fixing the gaps in behavioral health care. For more information on Montefiore Medical Group's Behavioral Health Integration Program, go to www.montefiore.org forward slash B-H-I-P, the B-HIP. And by the way, Montefiore is spelled M-O-N-T-E-F-I-O-R-E. www.montefiore.org forward slash B-HIP. For our next guest, we travel from the Big Apple to the Twin Cities. That is, the Twin Cities of Bristol, Virginia and Bristol, Tennessee. She's on the Tennessee side. Besides being the birthplace of country music, Bristol is also the home of community health worker Brianna Burke. Bri works as a community health worker, or CHW, at Healing Hands Health Center. As Dr. Herrick just explained, coordinated health care has so many pieces to it, from PCPs to specialists, nursing staff doing triage to front desk staff, trying to keep the engines running. There's no lack of work to be done. So we now pause to honor and discuss a significant and incredibly meaningful element of all this care, and that is the community health worker.
2: My personal experience, I became an actual CHW in 2019. Um, it was very new to our area. I was one of the first ones hired and um, have loved every single minute of it. It's a dream job for me.
0: You uh, you know, sometimes people confuse you with caseworkers, I think. Um, tell us, Tell us about what the difference is.
2: So we do not have a pre-made care plan or a specific agenda with our clients or our patients. So our care plans are more determined um, once we get to know them and get to figure out their situation and what's going on in their life and the things, like I said, patient-based, what's important to them. What's our, what are things that they need to move forward to be the happiest and healthiest they can possibly be? So we don't have that hidden agenda. Of we need you out by this day. So we have to figure do a quick fix. We are more of a we're going to walk alongside of you and figure out what's going on in life. We'll hold your hand for a minute, but then we're going to teach you how to move forward successfully.
0: Hmm. And when you get uh, clients, um, how do you get clients Where do they come from or are you searching for clients and out in the community sort of finding them or is it all of the above?
2: It's pretty much all of the above. So I work myself for a clinic. If our um, doctors in our clinic see patients that seem like they have deeper issues other than just medical care, they will definitely call me and be like, Hey, you might want to check up on them. I think they might have some social things. If doctors consider their patients non-compliant Um, I'm trying to change that verbiage. I don't like non-compliant. I feel like if people are not compliant, there's a reason. Um, It could be that they don't have water. It could be that they don't have electricity. It could be that they don't have the money to pick up their medications. There are all kinds of reasons why people could be non-compliant. So one of the things that I'll step in and do is find out what's going on in their life that makes them where they can't Take care of their health or take care of the things that are most important Um, so we definitely get patients that way i take community referrals as well i've even had the library call me and say i have somebody out here they've got a lot going on and they need a community health worker so definitely all of the above
0: why do you suppose your organization has decided to invest in this because some don't right
2: Correct. A lot of places do not. Um, my organization specifically seen a high need of their patients or their clientele that really had stuff going on socially, that really had some some problems going on, such as hunger, um, of course, all the food insecurities, and some other things going on that the doctors just couldn't get to. It's not, number one, in their job role. It's not something that they could... A lot of people don't confide in doctors. A lot of people are scared of doctors and they're just there to tell them one or two things and then they're out. Um, so they they just realize that there's something going on with our patients and they need a deeper level of care than we're able to give them in the office.
0: So sh- we're, we're really talking about social determinants of health and and the impact they social things can have on your health, like um, uh, food shortages. Housing problems, those eventually can impact your health. And uh, I imagine it must be so rewarding to sort of rescue folks in those situations.
2: It is, I don't necessarily say it's rescuing per se, but it is a great feeling to know that when you're there to support them and can show them a way out or show them that little shred of hope and watch their whole life turn around with something so simple, it is rewarding.
0: Talk to me about uh, the impact you believe community health workers have on uh, care quality and care equity, uh, because, you know, um, there are certainly uh, s- some shortfalls in certain groups across. And and I imagine in your clientele across, uh, you know, race or socioeconomic situation. Um, tell us about that.
2: So. I'm definitely an advocate for my patients. Um, I can remember the very first time um, I, I don't care to get on the phone with a doctor or whoever I need to, to talk to for my patients. So I can remember the first time someone overheard me on the phone with a doctor. They're like, that's not your role. You're talking to them about this treatment plan and this treatment plan. I said, you don't understand. My patient does not have the capability because of a situation in their life to do what I'm doing right now. So I am, that's what I am to this patient. I'm not the same to all my patients. I'm different to everyone that I work with because everyone has different needs. So sometimes I do have to stand up and be that advocate for my patients. And sometimes it's not as pretty. Sometimes it's me walking in saying, hey, this patient wasn't treated as fairly as I felt like they should be. And this is the needs that they have. And this is what we need to move forward to do for them because they have this going on and I don't feel like you heard them. So I've definitely been that to some of my patients. I think that it's definitely in our role to stand up and advocate for our patients when needed.
0: You know, I imagine your clientele is uh, somewhat rural, uh, a number of them. Um, And I don't think that sort of literacy thing, I don't want to tie it Uh, to rural communities, because this is true in urban communities, there's a role for community health workers sort of everywhere, right? There are, yes, for sure. Tell me why.
2: Because no matter where you go, there are people that's going to need to be cared for in a deeper way. There are people that's going to need the nudge in the right direction, whether it be that they've just made a Horrible choice at one time that's put them in the position they're in or they're just in a cycle that they can't seem to pull themselves out of. It doesn't matter where they are in life or where they come from, a big city or a small city like Bristol. There's people that need someone to believe in them. And that's where community health workers come in.
0: So in the end, um, the quality numbers, you know, quality measurement. You feel like that you make a real impact there in improving uh, folks, you know, staying on top of their their cholesterol medicine, their blood pressure in check, all of those things that may, community health workers make those those spin in some ways, huh?
2: We do. And it's because we are patient based. We find out like I go back to the non-compliant thing. We find out why they're not able to do that to begin with. We find out what is so important in their life, the big picture thing that is taking up all their room that they're not able to focus on that thing. We find out what that is and help them tackle that and get it out of the way so they can start focusing on like cholesterol or diabetes or the things that they really need to focus on. So once that's the real goal, even though we don't have a hidden agenda, we do want them to live their healthiest and happiest life. And we try to move those big things out of the way so they can see the need to start working on the other things.
0: How many community health workers are in your organization?
2: So right now, I'm the only actual community Mm -hmm. health worker. We Mm -hmm. have um, a community navigator and we have community resource specialist. But I'm the only community Mm -hmm. health worker, the only one that does home visits, um, the only one that does what I do at our organization.
0: Okay. And talk to us about the importance because you don't do this alone in so many ways. What you do is make partnerships between your client and community organizations. So I think that, uh, I would like to hear about that important relationship and how you all manage that.
2: I do not do this alone. In fact, mm-hmm. 99% of it is having resources at our fingertips that we can tap into. Um, Really, my job as far as partnering up with people is just getting in there, getting to know them, their systems, how things work. Not giving someone a phone number and saying, call this and they'll help you, but being able to know the exact process. When you call, this is what you're going to need. This is who you need to talk to. This is the process. This is how it's going to be taken care of. Um, and get letting people know that I'm here to actually help them as well. The resources that is because if they can't get those their hands on the items that they need to make it work, I can help them. I can help my clients or even clients they're working with. I can go and say, okay, this is what we need. How can I help you get these things? Um, because you know everybody has requirements, whether it be a government funded resource or a community funded resource. Everybody has a list of requirements that they need. So me being able to partner up and know exactly what they need and knowing how to guide my clients and my patients to the right people and be able to guide them through the whole process has been awesome. We have a great group of resources here in Southwest Virginia and Northeast Tennessee.
0: And it sounds like to me that, uh, and most places do have supportive organizations. It's just about making the connection. It is. Hmm. So, uh, we're going to finish up, but you know, let's, um, Speculate here that for for another organization like yours that is on the fence about employing a CHW program, make the last the last argument to push them over. What is it?
2: So, again, I don't know. I repeat this. We are the missing (laughs) link. We are the thing that is bringing the community into healthcare care with a more open mind and being able to move forward with their health care in the best possible way. Um, I think that having a community health worker be able to actually go to people's homes and get to know them for who they are and their life story, what made them who they are, and maybe find out that there are um, traumas are mental health things that's never been touched because they never understood that it was a mental health situation. They always just thought it was something they had to deal with. But getting to know them and getting to learn everything about them, I think, is going to open up a whole new door for healthcare workers because they're going to be able to approach their patients with a broader understanding of where they really are. They're going to be able to understand that this is not just a patient that's coming in that's non-compliant. This is a patient coming in that's lived with no electricity for two years and hasn't had a way to cool their medications and keep them cold when they're supposed to be cold. This is a patient that's been eating food that's been spoiled. Instead of just saying, oh, this patient has a stomach issue, they'll be able to actually know broad spectrum. This is what's going on in their life. Community health workers are needed in every healthcare facility.
0: And that is for sure. That's quite an argument uh, I'd buy.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, thank you very much, Brie Burke, uh, for joining us. But more importantly, thank you for the work you do. We know it has been a rough couple of years and uh, folks like you on the front lines have uh, really helped us all out. And we appreciate just how much you're improving healthcare quality. Thank you. Thank you community health worker Brie Burke on her joyful life of service to patients. By the way, NCQA was fortunate to have Brie panel with our president Peggy O'Kane in a webinar in December 2021 titled Effective Community Health Worker Programs, Critical Inputs for Supportive Systems. You can find that recording and the slide deck by searching for the title at ncqa.org forward videos. Again, that title effective community health worker programs. Time now for Matt's facts, some helpful pocket size hints toward better health. And this time around, please do share what I'm about to tell you in recognition of Mental Health Awareness Month, a quick plug for the nonprofit Mental Health America, who promotes mental health as a critical part of overall wellness, a running theme in this episode of Inside Healthcare. On the show, we recently gave hints on ways to reduce stress and improve your own day-to-day mental health. But what might be triggering your troubles? Well, in their downloadable info sheet titled, What Plays a Role in Developing Mental Health Conditions? The MHA notes the following risk factors that often contribute to mental health conditions. Social determinants of health. These are basically the world in which you live, including your living environment, access to education, and quality of healthcare. Trauma, this would include any stressful, shocking, or dangerous experience, physical or emotional, that leaves a deep, lasting, negative impact on you. Then there's genetics. As many genes can determine brain development, it's clinically arguable that issues with neurotransmitters can cause congenital defects that lead to mental illness. Also consider biology and brain chemistry. Chemical imbalances can be caused by a number of factors. Head injury can lead to brain injury, and deficient brain development can lead to either too many or too few brain receptors and transmitters that regulate brain function. Then habits and lifestyle. Chronic issues like lack of sleep, lack of exercise, and lack of hygiene can lead to and be symptoms of a mental health concern. And then finally, substance abuse, drugs and alcohol can affect your body's chemistry, permanently interrupting normal biological functions, even affecting or killing off neurotransmitters. For more information and great materials to share on improving mental health outcomes, go to mhanational.org. And again, for more on NCQA's PCMH behavioral health distinction, which includes evaluations for clinical mental health and substance abuse treatments, Go to NCQA.org, search in the upper right box for Behavioral Health Distinction. That'll take you to our PCMH programming page, then just scroll down to find the link on Behavioral Health, and you, my friend, are on your way. Always got something going on here at NCQA to tell you about, teaching training and ways to sharpen healthcare measurement. Right now, our quality innovation series continues with online webinars scheduled through August. To sign up, join in, watch on demand, and earn some ICPE credits, go to education.ncqa.org. Mid-July welcomes our two-day virtual digital quality summit. Speakers cover everything from the search for an innovative digital quality ecosystem to the virtues of the learning health system. More to come at ncqa.org. You can register there. Just search Digital Quality Summit. And keep an eye out for this fall's brand new four-day in-person event. Early November, really starts on Halloween, live in D.C., the NCQA Health Innovation Summit. For more on how you can participate, go to ncqasummit.com. And it's back to you now, loyal listener. Let us know how you use this show. In what ways does Inside Healthcare get you thinking about your own work? How does it inspire you toward continuing your education? And how does it make you think more deeply about what's best for the future of healthcare? To spark your idea machine, here's another water cooler question from today's discussions. Of the mental health risk factors we've mentioned, which do you think is most influential to a patient. Email us at any time at communications at ncqa.org. We'd love to hear your brainstorms, critiques, plans for your own field, even your ideas for great potential guests you'd like to hear on this show. Don't be shy, drop us a line, spread the word, tell everyone you know about the show. So thanks for joining us for another installment of Inside Healthcare from NCQA. Our audience continues to grow, And if you're listening right now, I'm talking about you. Tell everyone in your office or clinic to download this show to their phone, their laptop, anywhere podcasts are found. And with 79 episodes before this one, (laughs) trust me, you won't run out of great ideas for improving healthcare. On behalf of producer Dave Smaller and the entire communications staff, I'm Matt Brock. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again. No doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.